Hey, podcast listeners, thanks for listening. This is part two with Vanka LaFleur of West Wing Writers. She talks about Monroe's motivated sequence, mental cups. It all starts with ideas and content. Man, I thought it was great. Hope you love it. Enjoy. Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Are there any tricks? I mean, I'm sure there's many tricks. I mean, the one trick that I often use when I'm doing a speech is I've often learned that you, you got to start it with one of three things, and that is a story, a fact, or a question. Mm-hmm. I typically lean towards the stories. And the reason I do that more than anything else, I think it connects, done right, it, it provides a connection to the audience. And most notably, it gets them off their phones for a minute. When somebody's telling a story, you know, they'll, they'll look up and they'll start paying attention. It's, it's, it's just profound when you're on stage and you can see that happening. And that gives me more comfort because then I know, all right, people are in this with me. And, and then I get more empowerment when I'm on stage and, and, you know, I get some momentum myself. What other tricks do you see? Well, I love what you just said there, you know, I th- and I think, I mean, the most fundamental thing is when you're starting out a speech, you do have to get their attention. Um, and you gave three great ways to do it. Uh, and it, that's just, you know, that is the fundamental thing, right? You've got to grab their attention. A story um, is one of the best ways to do it. And you gave some very good reasons why, both from the speaker's point of view, like, as you say, you know, you feel like you're getting people with you. I think people often, uh, speakers, even speakers who who don't always feel very comfortable, you know, at a podium or in front of a camera, um, are okay telling stories, whether it's a story about themselves or if they don't feel comfortable telling a story about themselves, a story about somebody else. These are things that we do um, naturally. And and so it can be, you know, a, a great way for a speaker too to kind of have that, have that moment at the beginning of a speech where their own kind of they harness their own adrenaline in a very positive way. And as you say, then like the audience is going to perk up and listen to a story because our minds are wired for stories. We like stories. It's how we make sense of the world. And a great thing about stories is that they're much easier to remember. Um, and so when you tell somebody a story, odds are good that they'll be able to repeat the story after your speech is over. So that's another really good trick about that. Mm-hmm. So so thinking then about, you know, other other ways to grab an audience's attention right at the start of a speech. So you, you named three, a story, a fact, or a question. Um, you could give people sort of a shocking statistic or a, you know, a controversial, like a counterintuitive statement. Um, you could, um, well, some people will start with a joke, you know, people who, who, uh, who are funny or or um, are good at situational humor could kind of start with something funny if that works. Um, you could start with, you know, and this is kind of like a, a question, but that when we think about a question, there are lots of different ways to frame a question. So it could be a, a rhetorical question. Uh, it could be a question to the audience that demands some of their participation. How many of you have, you know, try to get the audience kind of hooked with you right away. Um, it could be... It, it, Another thing, when you said a, a fact, start with a fact, um, sometimes, you know, the fact that you start with is something that's really sort of shocking or suspenseful. Um, and, and that can also, you know, hook people right from the start. So those are, those are all great ways to do it. And and the main thing, which you just sort of understand intuitively, is you got to get their attention right from the start, which is why we sometimes counsel our clients. You don't necessarily need to begin the speech with the you know, the customary paragraph of thank yous. That doesn't mean that you don't weave those thank yous and acknowledgements in 
at some point, but it doesn't need to be the first thing that comes out of your mouth. You don't want to waste that, you know, that first moment of engagement with an audience by by thanking everybody for having you here tonight and and so forth and so mm-hmm. on. Jump right in and then put the thank yous a few paragraphs down. Makes perfect sense. Now, here's the question. What what do you stay away from or what drives you crazy? I guess what do you see in as a speechwriter, as a professional communicator, do you look at and you go, oh, when you see this happen? Is there anything that just and maybe it's repetitive. You see it over and over and it still drives yeah. you crazy. So, um, so I have to say I, I have a lot of compassion for writers and speakers. So I'm not going to say that anything makes me groan or, or drives me crazy. I really, I think it's really hard. And I, I, I really want to underscore that. You know, if it, if it wasn't so hard, yeah, there would yeah. be no need for a company like mine. Um, but <laughs> it is, you know, but it is really hard. And, 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 and I know that. Um, and so the, um, the thing, though, that I think we all need to work on, um, and even you know, even professionals. I mean, this is something that I'm constantly, you know, when I self-edit things that I'm looking out for. So one is jargon. I think that every profession and every sector and every industry and every community um, falls into its own vernacular, and you just have to be on guard for that and make sure um, that you are not um, you are not letting the jargon. Uh, first of all, obscure meaning. You know, you said, Al, at the beginning that sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you start to write things down and you realize, gosh, I don't really understand this. Well, I think sometimes it's so easy, you know, we're making that PowerPoint slide and throwing up the terms that we mm-hmm. always, you know, use and realize that we can't explain it. We don't really know what it means. Or, you know, my example from before, we don't actually really know who the stakeholders are, you know. Um, so you have to um, you have to really press yourself on the jargon and and try to put the jargon into plain English. That's one thing. And then, and then the other is kind of this question of concision and clarity and brevity. Um, now, in speeches especially, there actually is repetition oftentimes because uh, part of it is just, you know, the, the experience of a speech. Sometimes it's a rhetorical device to be, you know, repeating a phrase more than once. You think of I have a dream or any number of other speeches where that was actually part of the speech to have the repeated line. So it's not that you should never have repetition. But what you don't want to have is repetition of ideas um, so that people start to tune out because they feel like, okay, you've told me this already, Um, which reminds me that, you know, sometimes um, people will say, well, you know, the structure of a speech is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them. And I just really disagree with that. I think if if you have done your job Mm -hmm. right, you shouldn't have to be you know, like what a waste of your word count to say the same thing three times, you know, Um, you, you should, you should make the speech shorter and say it once really well. And, and then they'll remember it. Um, And uh, so, yeah. So, so I think those are, those are the two things I, I would put top of mind Um, watch out for jargon, which includes acronyms and, and so forth. And then just, yeah, you know, don't make it longer than it needs to be. We got a lot of jargon and sometimes it becomes our own language. And we got to watch out for that. So I think that's fantastic advice. Is this like crafting a song, though, in some sense? I mean, do you know when you have a hit? Do you know it? Mm. And then you go, oh, this is really good. Or do you know when you're just not getting them? It's like, oh, this is, um, but do you, let's start with the first. Do you know when you have a hit? Um, I think it's fair to say I, 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 I know when I, I think I have a hit. Um, but you, you know, like I, but, but you never really know. Um, I, 
you know, you know, when you know, yeah, it's hard to explain. I, I do think sometimes um, there are definitely moments when you, when I've, you know, worked with, with somebody and, and we're, we're putting something together and it does feel like, you know, the, the idea is so exciting or the story is so perfect, or we found just the right, you know, analogy to bring it to life or just the right example, or it's phrased in this perfect way. And you do feel really good about it. Um, but you, you can't always know. And, you know, and sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes you think you've written something brilliant. You've, you've written a joke you think is hilarious and the speaker doesn't like it or the audience doesn't laugh. You know, so sometimes these things happen. But I, I would say that, that, yeah, I mean, I I have, you know, definitely um, felt at times like, wow, you know, th- this is this is going to be good, you know, but it's not... Mm-hmm. Um, it's not because, and this is not false humility here, but it's it's not just simply like, oh, you know, here's this brilliant piece of writing and now this is going to be a hit. It's It's got to be everything that's coming together. So you have a really important message that somebody is trying to deliver. Um, it's it's an important moment for whatever reason. Sometimes you also get the, you know, the, the symbolism of a great location or a great anniversary or there's some reason why people are coming together that is also kind of adding to the momentousness of the occasion. And, and then you find the words. And when all of that comes together, then you know you have a hit. Then you know you have a hit. Um, How much of it is a delivery? I mean, I got to believe there's a, a huge part of delivery. And I also got to believe, you tell me, but there's some people you can write an okay speech for like you never write okay, you always write fabulous speeches, I'm sure. But you write an okay speech for and they can deliver it and it's great. And there's also the opposite. You could write a fabulous speech. I mean, knockout, this is a hit. And then they can't deliver it right for whatever reason. They're just not meant to do it. How much is in that delivery and and how do you handle that? So it is absolutely true that delivery um, is a great asset. You know, if you can deliver something well, that's a great asset. And I think that it is easier to teach people to be to deliver speeches well than it is to teach people to write, you know, so um, much less to think. Right. Like so it all starts with did you have the good idea in the first place? You know, do you have the smart policy or the compelling product or the whatever else? It all starts with with the message or the or the thing, the idea. Um, The delivery is, you know, great delivery uh, is is a is a great thing. but that is that's sort of the icing on the cake. And, and I think, you know, we have to remember that um, if, if it's a speech, you know, there's also a transcript or there's also a text. So it does live on its own, too. And mm-hmm. for the people in the room or the people who might watch the video um, who are going to see the delivery, the delivery is going to have a big impact. But at the end of the day, you know, whether something goes down in history or not, um, whether or not it, you know, actually moves product or not is, is going to depend on the content of the message, not the delivery. It's going to depend on the substance of the message and not the delivery. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, delivery is, is great. And, and I would encourage any speaker to practice, um, because I really do believe delivery is the, is the part that's easier to improve. Uh, the hard part is to have the great idea in the first place. And if you can do that, you know, then then you 
you know, please, please, please invest in delivery, practice it, practice it, because <laughs> it's going to make you so much better. And you've got this great idea, you know, um, so sell it all the way. I'm going to ask you a couple silly questions. Bear with me. I know that they're silly, but I'm still interested and I'm still going to ask them anyway. What do you think is the best speech of all time, in your opinion? Oh, gosh. I, I, it, you got to give me one. Know I know there's a lot. Yeah, there, <laughs> Can't you give are, me one there, that you like a lot? The goat. Can, yes. Okay. So, so some speeches that that just stick with me. Um, well, I'm I'm always very impressed and and deeply moved by uh, Bobby Kennedy's speech in Indianapolis when he learned that Martin Luther King had been shot, and you can see video mm-hmm. of that. Um, mm-hmm. And and that speech is really, it just sticks with me for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, you know, obviously, it, it it is a terrible thing to have had to speak about and, um, you know, a speech you wish had never had to have been given. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is one of these instances where he kind of rises to the moment um, in this very impressive way. And he uses very simple language uh, to talk about, you know, this very big thing that has happened. And he is addressing a crowd in real time. You know, he was campaigning um, and then he gets the news before the crowd does. And so he has to break it to the crowd in Indianapolis that this terrible thing has happened. And you hear the collective gasp from the crowd as he tells them. And then mm-hmm. he he talks about, um, again, just sort of really simple things, you know, and love and hate and, um peace and violence and black and white and, uh, you know, truth and, and, and justice. And he talks about his own family's experience, you know, that his brother lost his life, um, to an assassin's gun. And, and, and then at the end, he quotes from memory, a poem from Aeschylus, which is kind of incredible. I mean, it's just hard to imagine, you know, in contemporary political life that, you know, um, people would just be out there just like reciting classical mm-hmm. poetry off the top of their head. Mm-hmm. But but he he comes up with this very apt verse, um, you know, and, and, and when I was talking before about, you know, Bill Clinton, that his intellectual um, and just personal interests were so wide ranging that kind of everything was credible. So here you have, you know, Bobby Kennedy just kind of speaking from his own base of knowledge and, and quoting this poetry. And even if you had never heard of Aeschylus, um, that, that the words that he, he uses here um, still have meaning. You don't need to know um, where they came from to be moved by the words that, that Kennedy finds in that moment. So I, I just think it's just such an extraordinary, I don't know, thing that he does. Um, so that's one speech that sticks with me. I got a question for you. And maybe it's obvious. I asked a lot of rhetorical questions. One of the reasons I asked you that is just to kind of get why you felt like those speeches were were terrific. And and that's what you've done. What about the Gettysburg speech? Everybody talks Mm -hmm. about. Is that just a Mm -hmm. circumstantial situation that made it so great? I mean, it had some some incredible words in it. But what's your view on that? Was it great or was it like, yeah, it's just part of history? Yeah, well, I don't I don't want to pretend to be a a scholar of. um of, of Lincoln or of the Gettysburg address, but I mean, just, you know, again, when we think about some of the things, so, you know, we, we have there, we have this incredible moment in history. We have the leader, we have the location. Um, we have, you know, the, the meaning, um, it, it was one of those moments where all of those things were being fused together. Like we've said, sort of this, all of the things coming together at once. And then in 272 words, he managed to say something really profound, you know, didn't use more words than were necessary. Um, 
but you know, said something so profound that we're still talking about it today in 2023. Mm-hmm. You know, with quotable lines, um, with you know, with with a vision that that touched people. Um, just really speaking to the moment. And and then the other thing that I will say about that speech is that it follows a structure, which we as speechwriters often refer to that's called Monroe's Motivated Sequence. And it has, Monroe's Motivated Sequence has five steps in it. The first one is to get the audience's attention. The second one is to define a problem or a need. The third is to present a solution to the problem or need that that you've just identified. The fourth Mm -hmm. is a vision of how things will be different if you do or don't adopt the solution that's being put forth. And the last is a call to action. And if you look at those 272 words, um, you will see all five of those steps of Monroe in there. And I think that's also one of the reasons why the speech just coheres so well. And, and um, yeah, why we, why we're still talking about it, why we remember it, why we're able to um, kind of remember it and and talk about it even now. Well, what's amazing to me is what you said. It's like 271 or 272 words. I mean, a really small speech that gets all those points across that, that I guess embodies your position on simplicity and the fact that it can be done in powerful mm-hmm. fashion. Very nice. I could go on forever. This is awesome. By the way, this is very <laughs> awesome. You're good at what you do. Thank you for this. What's your view on chat GPT? I have, I have played with it a little bit myself, but not too much yet. I mean, it's, you know, it's extraordinary. Of course it's extraordinary. Um, you know, there are a lot of things about ChatGPT that seem incredibly exciting to me and also some that make me very nervous. And I'm sure that you are, are much better versed in these things than I am. But the, some of the things that make me nervous are, you know, um, AI's propensity to uh, fabricate and, you know, hallucinate and all of that. Um, the the fact that because it it seems so convincing because it is so self-assured, you know, the, the way that, that chat GPT kind of speaks, um, that it could lead impressionable people, you know, to think things that aren't true. Um, maybe to, to follow advice that isn't sound. Um, I, I worry about that. I, I have read articles about, you know, mm-hmm. the influence that the chat GPT could have even on our political system. If it makes it so easy to generate text that you could, then, you know, be bombarding politicians with letters or, or things that could, you know, could sway decision making. So, so I, I, I have, I have, you know, a whole mixed bag of concerns about it. Um, and the last one that I have is that it's my understanding that at least right now, you know, the, the, the sort of the corpus of data that it's using to generate the responses is only current up through 2021 or something like that. So it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's not the, it's not even drawing on, um, on, on the most recent information. And that, that makes me nervous too. But having said all of that, I mean, wow, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. And I'm, I'm sure that, um, it will be transformative, but, but like every transformative technology, I, 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 I'm sure there are going to be unintended consequences. As always, as always. No, I think it's, it's great technology. Look, uh, my point of view is, is very cool. I think, you know, I use it and it's a good place to get started just to get started, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's filtering or I don't want to say it's not filtering. It's grabbing anything and everything from the internet uh, with unknown copyrights. It's unbounded. Uh, you're going to get everything from self-help to hate speech all in the same, same gamut. So you got to be very careful. You know, IBM's approach is we're, we're, we're much more bounded. We're business driven. We make sure it's, it's, 
you know, isolated to one domain. But ChatGPT is a large language model that I think could still be used. You know, what I'm worried about is, I don't know if you've heard these fake speeches. Like mm. there's a fake Biden speech out there yes. that's yeah. a very hot trend in AI voice tech. It, I mean, it's his voice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If right now, I think it's all in entertainment and people aren't having good, positive fun with it, at least so far I've seen. But all it would take is for somebody to do that, put it in the context of some kind of uh, threat to another country or something. Right, I, right. That, that, no, terrifying. That's very scary. It's very scary. I mean, yeah, that's, I don't know what we're going to do. So I'm uh, moving on from that. All right. I got your chat GPT. You talk about mental cups. Can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about more about mental cups? Yeah. You speak so, about um, yeah. So, so this is what I'm talking about. Um, just sort of thinking about how much information you can give an audience at one time. And when you're thinking about a presentation or, or a message that you're trying to impart um, to be mindful of, you know, an audience that's hearing something in real time that does not have the text in front of them can't flip back and reread the paragraph that, you know, that you just said that they didn't quite get the first time. You just have to be very um, intentional about how much information you present, what order you present it in, what you're going to emphasize, and so on. Because, um, and I use the analogy of just sort of, you know, the brain like a cup, there is just only so much that it can hold in one go. And, and I would say sort of 20 minutes worth is probably the max of what people can really contain in one go. And if you give them more than that, um, if you imagine like pouring water into a cup, that once it has reached the rim, you can keep pouring the water um, and the cup is going to stay full, but things are now going to be splashing out onto the table and, and you end up with a mess instead of a message because you can no longer contain what you, you can no longer control what stayed in the cup and what splashed out onto the table. Um, and so that's, that's really what I mean. And, you know, I'm, I'm always, I joke, you know, when I'm teaching workshops, which are typically not 20 minutes long, you know, they're, they're an hour, two hours, three hours, Mm -hmm. um, that it may seem that I'm contravening my own advice there. But what I try to do in a workshop is to break it up so that I'm not just talking, you know, for that whole time, but that I'm breaking it up with exercises or audience discussion or showing a video clip or something else to kind of chunk the information, so that people's minds just have time to process a little bit and, and to sort and to, you know, um, reset, refresh, um, and, and get ready to absorb the next, the next cupful of content. Um, How so, do you so find that really, balance though? I yeah. mean, that, that's the difficulty. I mean, cause it's, I hear exactly what you're saying, but a lot of people, as I'm coaching them and look, I need to be coached just as well, make no mistake. But as I'm coaching them, uh, they don't see it quite the way I see it, right? They mm-hmm. say, "Oh, this is this is not too much. You know, we'll be fine here." The, all these words yeah. on the slide—they need those. You know that kind. How do you know if you found the right balance? Is there any tests that you can make or any things you can check yourself on? Yeah, I mean, there there are some sort of simple ones, you know, post-event surveys. But if you um, if if you do, you know, you give a presentation and then even immediately afterward, give the audience a brief survey and ask them, you know a few questions about the material you just presented and what do they remember and what do they retain? Um, And one exercise I like to do uh, sometimes in workshops, I had found a three minute speech. It was a Ted talk that somebody gave and it's only three minutes long. And I would show this, this three minute clip. And one of the things that the presenter does in this three minute speech is he's basically giving, um, you know, how, how, how do you become successful in life? And he says he went and he interviewed, you know, a lot of people who go to 
conferences like TED, you know, successful people ask them what their secrets are for how, how they thrive in life. And then he has these, these eight things that people do. So in, in the span of three minutes, he lists eight things that, you know, that make people successful. I show people this three minute clip and then I ask them how many of the eight things they can remember. And it's usually nobody can remember all eight, even after a three minute clip <laughs> that we just watched. But then what's interesting is I say, well, what do you remember? And they remember a few key things. They remember the part where he told the story. They remember the funny line, the joke that made them all laugh out loud. They remember that. They remember the acronym. Um, he says at one point um, that, you know, in order to be successful, you have to deal with a lot of crap. And what does crap stand for? And I think it's like criticism, rejection, a-holes and pressure or something like that. I, can't, I, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's yeah, something yeah. like that. They all remember that, right? Like, again, like using a, a, a um, um, what's the word? mnemonic device, you know, to remember something. So he's using in these three minutes, you know, little rhetorical tricks that help some of his eight points stick, whereas the other ones, you know, even three minutes is too long to retain a list that has eight things in it. So, um, so I think you, you know, the, the way coming back to your question about, you know, when you're coaching people, I think you have to actually sort of put it to the test with them and, and have them experiment, you know, have, have, have somebody present a list of 10 facts and then have somebody else weave those 10 facts into a story and kind of see, see which ways the audience is, or somebody else puts them up on a slide and, you know, leaves the slide up for four minutes. See what are, what are the different ways that you can help an audience retain the information if that's really what you're trying to achieve. And when you do these speeches, do you put emphasis on where tone should be placed? I mean, where does tone come in? Tone, um, inflection, et cetera. Yeah. So, well, I guess that that sort of comes down to delivery. Um, when okay. we're working with with speakers to really coach their delivery, sometimes we'll, you know, literally work with them to mark up the speech text, almost like sheet music, you know, underscoring things, putting things in bold, putting a lot of ellipses, sometimes writing into the speech text, you know, I'll write in parentheses, pause, you know, to, to sort of give them stage directions or, or whatever to help them kind of deliver their own material. Um and, and tone and what I would call vocal variety does matter a lot when you're speaking, um, because that's what makes it interesting to the listener's ear to have the variety. We've all, you know, remember the old Charlie Brown cartoons where the teacher's voice was when, when something just sounds so monotone, you know, it's, it's hard to stay engaged. So vocal variety does matter a lot, getting a little bit louder, getting a little bit quieter, you know, the pitch, the tone, all of those things can make a big difference. So yes, it does matter, but you know, but at the end of the day, like I said before, it, it does all start with the ideas. It does all start with the content, what you're saying, and um, and making sure that what it looks like on the page, you know, that what you're about to say, uh, is really worth listening to, and and then you can so, practice the tone and delivery. Thank you very much for that. Before we leave, um, West Wing writers, I yes. presume it's a combination of well, you need to describe your company, but. It will do education training on communication writing as well as writing speeches themselves. I mean, tell me what offerings you guys have. Yeah, so um, so we're, we're a strategic communications firm and really kind of see ourselves in, in the business of, you know, our some of our own kind of taglines say we're helping good people get good ideas out into the world. Um, we are actually platform agnostic about what the best way is to get that idea out. So it might be through a speech. 
Um, it might be through their website. It might be through a white paper. It might be uh, a video script. It might be they're having a multi-speaker conference. It might be internal comms or external comms. It might be ad copy. Um, it, it, and, you know, as short as a tweet, as long as a book. Um, they're all different ways to, to be getting a good idea out into the world. But our role is actually kind of all along the continuum of first helping people develop that idea to really understand you know, what is the unique thing, the special thing, the important thing that they have to say that is really unique to them, the message that they need to, to get out there that's, that's going to differentiate them from, from others in their space. Um, so, so to develop that message, identify and develop that message, and then to, um, uh, to, to actually craft that message. So the, the execution part, the writing, to express the idea. So we develop the idea, um, express the idea again in, in whatever form makes sense. And then the last phase of that is, is to amplify the idea. And that's a part of the business that um, we don't uh, we don't talk about as much. It's not as obvious in our name, West Wing Writers. The fact that, that we write is pretty obvious. But the amplification piece is both, you know, the training, um, the way I met you, sort of doing things like workshops and, and educational mm-hmm. um, offerings for, for communicators in-house and, and otherwise. And then um, also, we actually we have a publishing imprint called Disruption Books uh, that is part of our firm. Um, so yeah, it's it's we're very proud of the business. Um, we're we're now more than two decades old, as I said, founded in two thousand one, and headquartered in D.C., but with with also a physical office in New York, a, a big presence in Northern California, and and really, um, our clients are m- mostly in the U.S., but uh, but but some abroad as well, and certainly some global you know organizations um, that have. Uh, have locations all over the world. Very nice. Where can folks reach you and West Wing Writers? Uh, so our website is westwingwriters.com, and that's probably the best place to go. We also have a very active Twitter, uh, which is at West Wing Writers, and um, that is the the place to just sort of follow us day to day. Um, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say too, that one of the things that we're really proud about at the firm is that we have helped launch a lot of careers over the course of our, our existence. Um, we have a very robust internship program of which we're extremely proud. And, um, we get, uh, we, we take four interns a cycle. We have three cycles a year. So about 12 interns coming through the firm every year, we routinely get, you know, as many as 500 applications for one of these cycles. So for, for four slots, it's a very competitive, uh, internship, but, I, but I think that's because, um, our, our former interns go on to do incredible things, you know, including writing for CEOs and, and political leaders and, um, and and us, you know, if you look if you look at our own masthead, many of the people on our staff right now began as interns at the company and and stayed and rose within the company. Who are the client profiles you're targeting? There may be some people that are looking for coaching. I don't know if you do that. Um, well, I'll just stop there. Yeah. What, what's your client um, so, profile? Yeah. So our client profile is um, it is senior leaders. Um, uh, who who want to be thought leaders, um, or you know, or who again have important messages that they need to communicate internally, sometimes or externally, or both. And um, I would say that our you know our, our client mix, uh, it's in private sector organizations um, from you know some of the biggest firms. 
out there, the best known uh, brand names in the world to, you know, small startups and, um, and others. Uh, then we also do a lot of work for foundations and nonprofits and uh, academic institutions and, and so on, Great. and some political work uh, as well. And, and then work for, you know, high profile individuals, they're public figures who may have come out of, of one or another of these sectors or from entertainment or sports, um, who now, you know, they have a platform and, and causes they believe in, and, and we work with individuals as well. Would you like to say a few words about Chief? So Chief is actually, yeah, so I'm, I'm a founding member of the DC chapter of Chief. I'm, I'm not a founding member of the entire organization. So I'm actually a relatively new uh, member of, of Chief overall, but I, I was a founding member of their DC branch. Um, this is an organization, it, it began in New York, and it is just as, as you were saying, it's, it's for um, women leaders, kind of C-suite women leaders uh, to, to network and to support each other and to um, boost our own kind of, you know, uh, professional development and, and so on. And I have just found it, um, I have found it to, to be a great resource to meet other women in, in, uh, in jobs like mine, um, and to share ideas and to network. So, um, it's, I, I think it's a great resource, you know, for women who are looking for that sort of thing. All right. I got three very simple questions as we'll wrap it up with this. A uh, little personal, but I think you're, you'll be fine with them. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Oh, so many people inspire me. But I'm just going to go with the first thing that, that just um, started, that just immediately, yeah. instinctively. My, my parents inspire me. Um, I, I do feel just really fortunate to have been uh, raised by two amazing parents. As I say, they, they were both professors. They're retired now, but both still, even though they're in their 80s, both still extremely active. And in fact, they just published a book that they wrote together um, uh, just, just last year. Um, so, you know, my, my parents, um, both brilliant writers, um, and, and thinkers and role models. So they inspire me. My mom, um, who, uh, whose name is Elaine Showalter, uh, yep. for a long time was the chairman of the English department at Princeton, but also, um, known as, as a leading feminist scholar, really at the vanguard of feminist literary studies. Um, my father, whose name is English Showalter, was a French professor and uh, a scholar of 18th century French. And so when I talk about, you know, my I had wanted to be a diplomat and I was a French major in college. I mean, I think I'm really the fusion of both of my I was going to say, they must yeah. love you. They're like, this yeah, is the well, perfect kid. <laughs> well, of course they love me, but, um, but uh, I, I, I love them. And um, so, so that's who immediately came to mind. Uh, uh, I, I, of course, literally, I wouldn't be here without them, but also I, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm fair I'm, enough. Fair enough. I still learn from them today. All right. Question number two, and you're a writer, so I'm really interested in this. What's the book you recommend most? Well, I'm here, here, I'm going to give an answer, uh, just thinking about my profession. If, if I had to tell somebody to read just kind of one book that would be the most useful for the kind of work I do, I would say read made to stick. Um, which is by Chip and Dan Heath. Uh, and it is super accessible and it has um, just really good practical tips. And it, it, the book itself is actually um, sort of at a meta level, like the book itself illustrates and manifests a lot of the lessons that the book is, is encouraging people you know, to, to bring to their own work. So Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath, um, if you want to be an effective communicator. Awesome. 
And last one, this is the easiest one of all. What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing for fun right now because I actually just um, just came back from from one of these. My husband and I, um, late in life, are are learning how to sail, um, how to sail nice. a boat. And um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> so this does not come naturally to me. I must tell you. <laughs> um, I you know I grew up in Central New Jersey, and I'm I'm not a seafaring kind of gal. Um, but, um, but I'm trying and, um, it's a whole new vocabulary, you know, I'm, I'm learning all kinds of new words like starboard port and all of this and, uh, halyard and rudder and, you know, there's a whole new thing to learn, but it's kind of fun. And, um, and being on the water is of course amazing. And, and, and the dream is that we would be, we would someday become good enough sailors that, you know, we could invite friends to to trust us <laughs> to take them you out know, um, take them funny. out you know no no Gilligan's Island but you know that that we could all go sailing together so that's the plan well that's uh, that's what I'm it's doing. funny that it's funny that you say that I I bought a boat like about a month ago and oh last my gosh. week we, we, yeah we took it out but this is a it's a surf boat you can actually surf on the back of it so before I take friends out last week and it's you know, I'm, I live in Kansas city, so it, it's in Southern Missouri and the lake. And so we went down, there's a little chilly, but it wasn't bad. So we take it out. Yeah. And I'm messing around with this thing and it's got tabs, you know, so it can level the boat, you know, like if it's tilted a little bit, you just hit this tab. That's what they were telling me to do. So we're out this pleasure ride and I'm going, so I started playing with the tabs. This is the impatience in me. I didn't think they were responding. Like I put the tab up to like a number five. And then it would, it would go back down to zero. But what I found out later, what it was doing is it would calibrate down to zero until it worked its way up to five, right? So I don't think it works. So then I'm like, all right, hit it again, go to 10. Hit it, hit it, no, hit it again to go to 20. And I'm like, this thing isn't working. All of a sudden the boat goes boom <laughs> on its side and I am going down the main channel and I got kicked out of my seat and I'm, my wife was on the other seat. I'm almost sitting on her. She's looking at me. I'm looking at her. I'm like, I, I'm not even holding the steering wheel anymore. I had to make my way back and finally uh, pulled the throttle back. And I, I, I got to admit, I was scared to death. For a minute. I thought we were going to tumble over. So practice before. I'm glad I did yes. that without my friends yes. being on board. Thank you for spending so much time with us. I learned a ton. This is going to be great. You're special because we're going to have two podcasts out of this. Oh my this goodness. This is fantastic. Wow. It, well, thank you for being here and thank you for taking so much time and, and hopefully you get a lot of a traffic to your site. So again, oh, I appreciate oh, you being here. Thank you so much. It, it was a huge honor and, and a delight to see you both again. All right. Take care. Thank you. And as always, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we'll see you on the podcast. Later, guys.